Are you happy to be in the house of the Lord today? God is good. Father, we pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. Jesus, you said that we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. And so this morning I pray that there would be a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge that goes beyond head knowledge, that even goes beyond heart knowledge, but that in our mind, body, soul, and spirit we would know the truth and that we would be free. I pray that you would bring our faith into alignment with what you've already done on the cross. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is installment three of my four-part series, Holiness, Healing, Deliverance, and Prosperity. Holiness, Healing, Deliverance, and Prosperity. Uh, First of all, did Pastor Joseph bring a powerful word last Sunday? I know he did. Marvelous time. And my wife and I and the couples that went had a wonderful time at the marriage retreat we went to. Uh, Wonderful, powerful testimony came out of it. My wife and I did a marriage conference in Selma back in January, and there at that marriage conference there was a couple there that was on the brink of divorce, and the sister of the wife had begged her and her husband to come to the conference, and they came, and uh, not only did they have a breakthrough in their marriage, but a couple things. One, she had lupus, and two, she was barren. And we ministered to them at the conference, and after the conference she started feeling a change in her body. Well, number one, they had a major breakthrough in their marriage and reconciled. But number two, she started feeling strange, and she went to the doctor, and they said, oh, here's the problem. Your kidneys are starting to operate again, and they've been at 0%, now they're operating again. I've got to take you off the kidney medication. And then she still felt funny, so he took her off the liver medication. And then he, she still felt pretty soon, within five weeks, he took her off of all of her medications, and he said, I don't know what's happened, but there's no lupus in your body anymore. But wait... That's not the end of it, because she still started feeling strange in her body, and she went back and they said, well, let's run a blood test to find out what's going on, and they came back and said, you know what, you're pregnant. And she said, well, how pregnant am I? And he said, about five weeks. And she looked at her husband and said, what happened five weeks ago? And he said, five weeks ago we were at that marriage conference in Selma. Jesus is good. So we had the opportunity to minister to, this enti- to the entire Central California district of the Pentecostal, Charisma- uh, Pentecostal Church of God, which is a worldwide denomination with millions of people in it. And uh, not only did we get to do the marriage conference, I just got a call from the district office, and we're also going to be doing their big denominational conference in the fall, in September, which is about 2,000 people at that conference. And uh, the last two speakers have been Tommy Barnett and Tommy Tenney. You ever heard of those two guys? (laughs) So that's pretty cool stuff that the Lord is doing, huh? So we're really, really excited about it. All right, I just had to share that with you because I'm just too excited about that. My wife and I have been... My wife can preach, can't she? She's, She's not just taking the offering. I mean, when somebody takes the offering so good that you feel like taking an offering for her... (laughs) I got to take an offering for her for the way she took that offering. That was, it made me want to leave the keyboard and go, you know, put some more money in the plate. (laughs) Ooh, I'm a give. Yeah. Abraham. (laughs) Abrahamic season. All right. I feel like we need to open and pray again. 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. Today we're talking about deliverance, and I won't keep you long, only about an hour or so. We're talking about deliverance, and the whole fundamental premise behind this entire series, this four-part series, is that there is one faith. Look at, look at your neighbor and say, one faith. There is not one faith for healing and another faith for salvation and another faith for deliverance and another faith for provision. There's one faith that does all of the above. Remember in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus was teaching in somebody's house and the place was so full that no one could get in and no one could get out. But there were four friends that had a, 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 a friend of theirs who was paralyzed from the neck down. And they didn't come to the house and see that they couldn't get in and say, oh, well. That's what a lot of us do. We're confronted with an obstacle and we go, oh, well, that's the best I could do. I tried. I did my best. Oh, well. No, they had some reckless faith. I, I'm looking for a whole generation of folks that got reckless faith. I'm talking about destructive faith. If your faith is not willing to destroy anything in its way, you ain't got the kind of faith that gets an answer from God. If your faith backs down in the face of opposition, you are not going to get nothing from God. But if you got some reckless faith, some destructive faith, I'm talking about demolition faith. I'm talking about faith that is weapons grade. I'm talking about weapons grade faith. Faith that is, has been weaponized. These guys had some destructive faith, so much so that they were willing to destroy this man's house. I mean, you couldn't just patch a hole in a roof back then. You destroyed the house. They had to build that man another house. See, they had faith for provision, too. <laughs> They puncture a hole in the roof and they lower the man down. And the scripture says, when Jesus saw their faith. Didn't say he saw their faithfulness or their persistence or their consistency or their labor or their struggle or their long suffering or their sacrifice, which are all the things that we think the Lord sees, but he's only looking for faith. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? He didn't say, will he find sacrifice? He didn't say, will he find service? He didn't say, will he find people serving ministries? He said, will he find faith? Yeah. What he's looking for is faith. And it says, when he saw their faith, he said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven you. And there was an odd silence because they're thinking, that's not what we were here asking for. I mean, I know I got some sins, but I was going to ask for that later. What I was asking for right now is, Dude, I'm paralyzed from the neck down, homie. And at first they're thinking, man, we got the wrong kind of faith. You ever just felt like, man, I just don't have enough faith for this. When they didn't immediately get the answer that they were looking for, they immediately assumed that they didn't have the right kind of faith. And Jesus, a few minutes later, says, oh, and by the way, I almost forgot, take up your bed and walk. That one faith that you brought with you, faith for healing, it's enough to get you forgiven, it's enough to get you delivered, and it's enough for provision. Yeah. It's enough for all of the above because there's only one faith. Yeah. Now, of course, in Psalm chapter 103, verse 2, and we've, we've mentioned this in both of the previous, and we'll mention it again next week because that's how I roll. Uh, David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all of his benefits. We like to claim some of them, 
But David said, don't forget any of them. Forget not all. Don't forget any of his benefits. Don't leave any of them out. And it, uh, all of us, we tend to struggle in a particular area of faith. You know, I, I, talk to a brother, I talk to Oscar all the time, and I say, man, I struggle here. And Oscar says, man, I got full faith for that. I struggle here. And I say, man, how about this? I'll believe for you. I'll lend you my faith in this area. You lend me your faith in this area. We'll complete each other's faith. We have to challenge each other sometimes to forget not all his benefits because I want to forget about his benefit in, in, in one area and just assume that that benefit isn't for me. It's for everybody else, but it's not for me. And David says, no, forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, that's holiness. Who heals all your diseases, that's healing. Who redeems your life from the pit, that's deliverance. And who satisfies your soul with fatness. I have been satisfied. Mm. See, the, the, key, the key to losing weight is to wear tighter clothes so that you look slimmer. <laughs> My uncle used to say, if you ain't got money, make them think you got money. If you ain't skinny, make them think you're skinny. A- amen. <laughs> All right, today we're focusing in on deliverance. What is deliverance? What is deliverance? Deliverance has to do with being set free. Deliverance has to do with living a life of victory, living a life of freedom, living in a place that is above and beyond every potential power of opposition. Uh, David said in Psalm 91.14, or God spoke through David in Psalm 91.14 and said, Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. And when he used that word high, it means out of the reach of every power of opposition. When God sets you on high, he sets you out of the reach of every power of of opposition so the devil can reach for you but he can't reach you you're too high for him you ever had you ever tried to get something out of the cabinet but you weren't tall enough to reach it and you had to call somebody taller will you never had that problem tanasha you never had that problem that's the thing with having a super tall wife is she never has to ask you for nothing out of the cabinet but when your wife is five foot three like my wife Baby, come here. I need you to reach this for me. But the problem is the devil don't have anybody in his house that's tall enough to reach the one that God has set on high. And so David says when God delivers you, he sets you on high. He sets you out of the reach of the enemy. And living a life of deliverance means living out of the reach of the enemy. Living in a place where you're looking down on him going, you can't touch me. I know you wish you could. Look at what you could have had, but you lost because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't touch me. Can't touch this. Come on, somebody. I should have called this message, can't touch this. I should have wore my hammer pants today. Gone way back into my closet. Now, here's the, here's the question we need to ask when we're talking about deliverance. We need to know why we need deliverance. What do you need deliverance from? This is really the question... Can a Christian have a demon? I'm just going to answer it for you. The answer is uh, yes and no. The answer is both yes 
and no. Actually, the answer is primarily no. The answer is first and foremost no, but secondarily it is yes. Let me explain. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed powers and principalities, made a public spectacle of them, and triumphed over them by the cross. First of all, he disarmed powers and principalities. What does it mean to disarm someone? When you disarm them, you take away all of their weapons. You render them powerless. He disarmed powers and principalities, meaning that every power of opposition that seeks to come against your life has to come against your life without any weapons. You know, when you go into a certain place, there's a metal detector, and I don't care how many weapons you're carrying, you got to take them weapons off. you got to go through the metal detector. Before the devil can get to your life, God has a metal detector, and he disarms them of every weapon that could be used to harm your life. So how can you be held captive by that which has, has been disarmed? says he made a public spectacle of them, which is interesting because it seems like he was the public spectacle on the cross, doesn't it? To be made a public spectacle of means to be humiliated publicly in front of your peers. It says that by the cross, Jesus publicly humiliated every power and pr- He made a laughing stock of the demonic. He made a laughing stock of the demonic. Why? Because they thought they were doing something when they put him to death, when they crucified the Lord of glory. What they didn't realize was that the power of the cross was their, the very power that defeated them and took away their power. And so by allowing himself to be exposed and publicly humiliated, he actually exposed and publicly humiliated every power and principality. You ever been made a public spectacle of? I remember when I was in the eighth grade, I had an afro, and it was not on purpose. I just didn't have no money to go get my hair cut. So I'd go to the barbershop like every two months. So imagine, you know, if I let my hair grow for two months, you'd be scared. You'd, give, you'd offer me money on the street. You'd probably think I was homeless, you know. You know, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, so I had this big afro. My afro was so big. It was so big that at lunchtime one day, I'm on the playground playing basketball, and a bird poops in my hair, and I didn't even feel it. You know when I discovered it? When Tamra Jackson discovered it in the middle of class. I'm sitting in my chair, and I lean back and yawn, ah, and Tamra Jackson, sitting right behind me, goes, Oh my God, he's got Dookie in his hair! And the whole class laughs at me. I was made a public spectacle. That is cold. That's cold-blooded. You know what's, you know what's funny, though? I didn't see Tamara Jackson since the eighth grade, but I ran into her again like a few months ago. She came to our block party last year. And you know what she said? All these years I've wanted to apologize to you for that. <laughs> I said, it's all good. I would have done the same thing if it was you. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm not mad at you. But when you are publicly humiliated, when you are made a public spectacle of, you lose all of your power in the presence of people. You have no power of influence when you are the object of ridicule. 
At the moment when people are laughing at you and scoffing at you and pointing the finger at you, can you turn and influence anyone? Jesus made every power and principality an object of public ridicule and humiliation, which means he took away all of their power to influence anyone. He made them a cosmic laughing stock. So when you see the devil, you should laugh. You got punked. <laughs> Remember the cross? <laughs> you see the devil hold, hang down his head more. The problem is when the devil starts coming towards our lives, we have so much faith in his power. And it says that he triumphed. Not only did he disarm the devil, not only did he make him a laughing stock, but he triumphed. Meaning he defeated the devil once and for all. He defeated the devil. So he has been disarmed, he has been made a laughing stock, and he has been completely and totally defeated. How can you be defeated by a disarmed, humiliated, defeated enemy? You know, when you see somebody get beat up at school, it does something to you. You never fear that person again. You might have been afraid of them, but once you see somebody else punk them, you walk around school thinking, I wish he would talk some crap to me again. <laughs> oh, shoot, I used to let him punk me? Please. <laughs> he walking around school, he comes, oh, it's just you. What, what, what? You want to say that again? Don't, don't make me go get Charlie. <laughs> So then how do we come under the influence of the devil? It's easy, by faith. See, all things are possible to him who believes. Problem is, there's a lot of faith in the body of Christ. A lot of faith. The body of Christ is full of faith. Full of faith. Faith for the flesh. Faith for the devil. Faith for poverty. Faith for sickness and disease, faith for losing your job, faith for all kinds of calamity and trouble and tragedy, so much so that we live in the constant expectation that Murphy's Law is really divine truth. That if anything can go wrong, it certainly will. When, G when the devil sees Jesus come into your life, the devil naturally thinks, oh great, it's all over for me. Ah, great. Man, I just lost my chance with that person. But then when he sees you afraid of him, oh, I wonder if the devil's going to come back into my life. He goes, you mean I can? Oh, cool. <laughs> if you give him a little inch in your life, he'll take it. Just a little inch. That's all I need. He'll, he'll, come, he'll come in politely, too. That's all I need. I won't make a big nuisance. You won't even know I'm here. I'm just going to post right in this little place. This is all I need. I'm just going to put my lie right here. Is this okay? Is this okay? You go, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. That's fine, devil. All right. You won't even know. I won't disrupt the Jesus thing you got going on over here. You just keep that Jesus thing over there, and I'll just keep my little thing over here. 
How does this work? Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Let's, let's open this up a little bit. How does this work? First thing you need to know is that the devil cannot just come overpower you. You do not need to be afraid. Every time we talk about demonic bondage, you know, I could tell you stories of people we've seen manifest demons and get delivered of demons and so on and so forth. And every time I tell, and a lot of times I, we see Christians manifesting demons. But whenever we talk about Christians manifesting demons, people get all worried and scared. Oh, maybe I got a demon. What if I got a demon? Oh, what if I get a demon? Oh, I, yeah, listen, you don't have to be worried. The devil cannot come and overpower you. Look at this. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Are you there? Good. Look what it says. The acts of the sinful nature, the NKJV, the New King James Version says, the works of the flesh. The word in the Greek for acts or works is the word erge. It means it comes from the word energy. It's the word where we get the word energy from. The energies of the flesh or the powers of the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the inner gamaton, the energies. It's, uh, it comes from the same word of the Spirit. Speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, he calls them the energies or the workings or the powers of the Spirit. Here he's talking about the energies or the workings or the powers of the flesh. You can also call it the gifts of the flesh. There's the gifts of the Spirit, but there's also the gifts of the flesh. I'm just operating in my fleshly gifts. And I'm moving in several flesh gifts simultaneously with great power. He says the gifts of the flesh are obvious. Now the first few of them are obvious, aren't they? Look, sexual immorality. Does that make sense to you? Does that come from your flesh? Now, what is the flesh? First of all, the flesh is not the physical body. He's talking about the sin nature, that nature that is built, bent on rebellion on the inside of you that wants to rebel against what God wants and what God decrees. You say, well, we're not born into sin. Look, if you've got a baby, you know you've been born into sin. No, nobody have to teach that baby to disobey. You've got to teach a baby to obey. <laughs> Tell my baby, No. And she goes, no, don't touch that. And she goes, no, the very thing I say, don't touch. She walks up to him and goes, no, 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 no. Adults do that too. God, I know you don't want me to touch this. Help me, Lord. Lord, give me grace. Help me not to touch this. No! Heard a brother say, I was in her bed at 1 o'clock in the morning going, Holy Spirit, help me! I said, brother, it's too late for that. You should have been praying that on the way to her house as you turned the car around and went back home. You cannot go over to her house at 11 o'clock at night, crack a bottle of wine, turn down the lights, and turn on Luther Vandross... You know, when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, he's talking about the grace of Satan. You know, there's a grace of God, there's also a grace of Satan. What is the grace of Satan? 
Well, first of all, what's the grace of God? The grace of God is the unmerited favor of God. It's, it's that divine empowerment that goes beyond that which you can procure or accomplish for yourself. The grace of God comes in and he gives you something for free, something you didn't strive for, something you didn't work for, something you don't deserve. When you receive the grace of God, you stand in awe before the cross and say, I didn't deserve this, but God, thank you so much. I talked about uh, when the Lord healed my tooth. I didn't even ask him to. He just came in the car and healed that rotten tooth I had in my mouth. That was the grace of God. It was free. It was unmerited. I didn't deserve it. I can't say it was because I'm so spiritual and, I've, and because I've learned. No, no, no. It's grace. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Nothing I could do to deserve it or earn it. There's also the grace of Satan. The unmerited favor of Satan. He says, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to bless you with it anyway. Oscar tells me about when he was unsaved. He said, I used to smoke a lot of weed. He said, I used to smoke more weed than Snoop Dogg. He said, and I would have loved, he said, I would have loved to find a bag of weed on the ground. He said, there was no grace when I was unsaved. He was telling me, he said, even my buddies, if I didn't have money, they wouldn't even let me get a hit. I was like, come on, man, can I get some of that? They're like, no, man, if you ain't put in on this, you ain't getting none of this. But after I got saved and I'm walking strong and I'm living for Jesus, he said, I was walking down the street, speaking in tongues, singing hymns, sharing the gospel and praying for the sick. I saw five healings. And when I got to the corner, on the ground was a big bag of weed. The grace of Satan. He says, this is grace. This is grace. This is free. You didn't earn that. I'm just off. It's unmerited favor. Life is full of choices. Every day you have to choose between which kind of grace you're going to accept and which one you're going to reject. You have to turn away from the grace of Satan and you have to cling to the grace of God. Listen, if you're angry, the devil will jump on that anger and say, I'll give you the grace for that. I'll give you the grace to keep on being angry. See, in your strength, you can only be angry for a few minutes, but in my strength, you can be angry for years. You can cling to that anger for decades, and ten years later, my grace will not run out. It is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness, saith Satan. Okay, watch this. First work of the flesh is obvious, sexual immorality. And then secondly, he says uh, impurity. Does that make sense? Okay. How about debauchery? Big word, what does it mean? Simply means overindulgence, excessiveness. That's really what debauchery is, is excessiveness, excessive indulgence in the flesh. Do you know that there's a godly form of debauchery? Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The word in the Greek is very similar to the word debauchery. It means excessively. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it excessively, that you might have more than you need, more than you want, more than you ever know what to do with, so much so that you just got to give it away everywhere you go and you can't give it away quickly enough because I'm downloading more and I'm downloading more of your life and power. But the devil is saying the same thing. I came that you might have death and that you might have it so abundantly that you just got to give it away everywhere you go. You just got to dispense it. It's the grace of Satan. Now, Paul changes channels on us. Because this don't seem obvious to me. This seems demonic, not fleshly. Look at verse 20. Sexual immorality I can understand, but idolatry, isn't that demonic? I looked at the word in the Greek. The word is 
idololatreia, idololatreia. Latreia is the word for worship. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship, your spiritual act of latreia. Say latreia. Latreia, that's one of two Greek words for worship. The other one is proskuneo, which means to lay prostrate. Latreia means to serve. It's not idolo proskuneo, it's idolo latreia, meaning it's serving idols. Not just laying down and bowing down. See, when we hear the word idolatry, we think of pagan worship where they bow down to a piece of stone. That's proskuneo. But latreia is when you leave the house of God and you serve him or you serve Satan. Serving idols, the service of idols is what idolatry is. Doesn't that sound demonic to you? But it's a progression. If you start with sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, you end up in idolatry because idolatry is serving or worshiping anything other than God. And when you are involved in sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, you are serving yourself. You are setting yourself up as God. You're saying, I don't care that God says no to this. I say yes to this, and it's all about me getting what I want. And as soon as it becomes about me getting what I want, I set myself up as God. I become an idolater. The worship of self. And the grace of Satan is there to empower that. But it didn't start with Satan. It started with me. It wasn't that Satan came and overpowered me and made me an idol worshiper. It started with me bowing down to my own sinful desires, and instead of putting them to death, I affirmed them. And Satan says, let me help you with that. Here's why it's so dangerous. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul is talking to the church at, at, at Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says that the sacrifices that pagans make are offered to demons. You know what Paul is saying? Behind every idol is a demon. It starts as a piece of wood or a piece of stone that's cut out of a rock or cut out of a tree and fashioned into an idol. But when they start to worship that thing, a demon comes and attaches itself to it so that it starts out as simple ignorance and it becomes full-blown demonic. The grace of Satan comes to empower every act of idolatry. That is, as soon as you set yourself up as God and begin to live for your own desires, to gratify yourself, to do what you want, there is a demonic presence that comes and says, now that you've become an idol, you've given me the right to be here. Mm. The progression continues. It becomes witchcraft. Now, wait a minute. I know that's demonic. It went from idolatry to witchcraft, but witchcraft is listed as a work of the flesh or a gift of the flesh, a working or power or energy of the flesh. I thought witchcraft was completely demonic. I mean, when I think of witchcraft, I think of a witch doctor, you know, chanting and shaking stuff and making blood sacrifices and, and doing incantations and magic. You know what witchcraft is? First of all, the Greek word for it is pharmakeia, which is where we get the word drugs or pharmacy. Pharmakeia. It has to do with an altered state of consciousness, creating an altered state of consciousness in oneself or in others in an attempt to manipulate and control. Anytime you attempt to manipulate and control others for your own means, you are involved in witchcraft. 
It starts with me simply gratifying the desires of my sinful nature. That results in me becoming an idol, living for myself. And once I'm there, the natural next result is I start to manipulate others for my own means. And the devil comes and says, I'll empower that. I'll help you with that. I got some tools to help you do that. I'm the master of that. And I see you're doing this thing, and I I just want to help you. And so you walk down that path far enough before you know it, you've got a demonic stronghold in your life. A place that you've given to the devil and said, please come and dwell here. Please come and make your home here. Please set up your tent here. A place where you have so aligned yourself with his agenda that he has the right to be there now. And he didn't come and overpower you. You invited him. So can a Christian be demonized? No. But yes. Only by faith. If knowing the truth makes you free, then knowing the lie makes you in bondage. All right. So how do you get out of this? That is, how do you move from the works of the flesh to the works of the Spirit? How do you transfer from the grace of Satan to the grace of God? How do you get clean in every area of your life? Well, there's only one formula, and that formula is called faith. In Mark chapter 9, verse 14 and following, uh, Jesus, I love the story because... He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, 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 that's this ghetto. (sighs) Praise him. He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and uh, uh, when he gets down the mountain, the church is in chaos. I mean, the disciples are arguing with each other, fighting each other, and arguing with other people. The Pharisees and Sadducees are there stirring up trouble. And there's, I mean, it's chaos. Can you imagine me and my wife going away on a trip? and coming home, and the whole church is in chaos, and everybody's fighting each other, and we can't even start the service because people are yelling at each So Jesus is like, what in the world is going on here? And a man steps forward, and he says, I brought my son to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus goes, you wicked, he's looking at his disciples now, you wicked and adulterous generation, how long have I been with you? You should know better than this. Come on. Just bring the boy to me. So they bring the boy, and when the, and the boy is demon-possessed, as Scripture says. When the demon sees Jesus, the boy falls on the ground and starts freaking out, manifesting. The demon starts manifesting. If you don't believe in demons, by the way, <laughs> just see one manifest. That'll change. <laughs> you say, oh, all that demon-possession stuff, that's just psychological. Yeah. No. There are certain, (laughs) you've never seen one. (laughs) You never heard one speak. (laughs) You've never seen somebody levitate. (laughs) I don't know of any psychological state that can do that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Jesus says to the Father, How long has he been in this condition? And the Father says, Since he was a boy. Oftentimes the demon causes him to throw himself into the fire to kill him, or throw himself into the water to drown him. Why? Because the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil, listen, make no mistake, the devil only wants one thing. He wants to kill you. 
He wants to destroy you. He wants to take everything from you. And when you step onto his territory and think, I'm just going to take one little step in that direction, you give him an inch, that inch will become two inches and, and before you even know it, and that two inches will become a mile. He takes ground in you. His faith is aggressive. And so the man gets finished telling Jesus the story of what happened, and he says, uh, if there's anything you can do for us, please have mercy on us. If there's anything, if you can, if you can do anything for us, if, if you can, and Jesus says, if I can. Now watch this. Here's the formula for deliverance. If I can, all things are possible to him who believes. Do you believe? He didn't say, well, I need to sit down and I need you to give me the whole history of everything that happened to him and I need to find out exactly how this happened. No, no, no. Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. Do you believe? Do you believe? I said it before, I see so much repenting in the church, but so little believing. The scripture says, he who repents and believes shall be saved. When you repent, do you get up off your knees believing that you're saved, believing that you're delivered, believing that you're set free, or do you walk back and say, well, we'll see what happens. Let's see if this was real. All things are possible to him who believes, meaning nothing is possible to him who doubts. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men freely without finding fault. You ever ask for something and feel like God didn't give it to you because he found fault in you? Oh, well, I know why God didn't do this because, uh, because of this. Because God wants me to fix this. Because God wants to take away this. Because God wants to... And, and, once, and pr- once you start going down that road, you have to become perfect before God does anything in your life. Ten years later, well, God's going to do it, but first I have to do this. And, and, and first he wants me, and there's all these conditions to the work of God. James said, cut all of the conditions. If you need wisdom, ask God. He gives freely, and he does not find fault. And it will be given to him on one condition. Let him ask in faith. Nothing doubting. Because he who doubts is like a wave driven by the wind. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Don't let that man think he's going to receive anything from God. We should all go home and memorize that. Don't let that man think he's going to receive anything from God, meaning that at the moment you believe and then the next day you doubt, forget it. You just lost it. Don't think you're going to, you're right, you're not going to get it. Double-mindedness. Do you know that the doubter is double-minded? That You know you can even be encouraged as a doubter. Doubters can be encouraged too. A doubter is simply a wave driven by a wind. A wind of adversity comes, it blows you to discouragement. A wind of blessing comes, it blows you to encouragement. The fact that you're encouraged today doesn't mean that you're in faith. It just means a little wind of encouragement blew your doubt and behind over here to this place where you feel good for today. But you know what? Tomorrow another wind is going to blow you back to the place of discouragement. You're double-minded. 
We think moments of victory and moments of faith is all God wants and what God is wanting is unrelenting, unflinching, consistent, perpetual, forward-moving, ground-taking, ground-breaking, pioneering faith that says I will not doubt even if every devil in hell stands in my way, even if nothing happens, even if the opposite seems to happen, I will not doubt. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You just got to know the truth. You can't be bound by that which has been defeated. Jesus says, do you believe? And watch this. This is the beautiful part of the story. The, Lord, the man says, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I've often read that and thought... Jesus accepted this mixture of faith and unbelief and said, this is enough. But it just hit me in a different way today. You know what I realized? The moment the man took his unbelief to Jesus and said, help me with my unbelief, what's not written there is at that moment Jesus helped him with his unbelief. Done. And then he turns to the boy and says, come out. The problem is not that you don't have faith. The problem is that you let it go. Scripture says that all of us have been dealt a measure of faith. If you believe in Jesus, you've been given a measure of faith. You got it. The disciples said to Jesus at one point, increase our faith. And Jesus said, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. And you can say to this mountain, be lifted up and cast yourself into the sea. And it will obey you. And nothing will be impossible to you. That's all you need is mustard seed, the smallest little grain of faith you guys got that don't you the problem is you don't have any faith in your faith you got faith you just think it's absolutely powerless and can procure nothing from god on your behalf you think your faith is powerless ineffective and fruitless and that's why you don't get anything out of it But if you would rise up today and recognize, number one, that it's not even about your faith. It's about what Jesus did. And it's about trusting in what Jesus did. Trusting in the work of Jesus Christ and believing. Remember, it's the same faith. It's one faith. That is, if you came to faith in Jesus Christ and that was enough for salvation, it's also enough for your deliverance. You already got it. It's enough for your healing, for your deliverance, and your prosperity. What faith in Jesus Christ means is not only believing in what he did on the cross, but believing in what he did in your life through the cross and trusting that what, when he opens the door, no one can shut it. Do you believe that? Yeah, yeah. When Jesus opens the door, no one can shut it. Is that true? Yeah. When he shuts the door, no one can open it. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. When he decrees it, no one can reverse it. Is that true? Yeah. So why is it that when he delivers you, you go home and doubt it? I have a good friend. He's, he's very open. I don't think he would mind me sharing his testimony with you today. He's very open about it. He's 25 years old now. When he was 14 years old, he got involved in all kinds of sexual perversion. All kinds. And I can't even begin to describe the type of bondage he was in. But I'll just give you one detail. By the time he was 16 years old, he had been with 
more than 200 partners. And most of them were men. He had sold himself. I mean, he had done a number. It was, it was bad. At the same time, at the same time, he was discovering the, the, the call of God on his life. Going to church and preaching, and prophesying, leading prayer meetings with great power, but living a double life. After about a year and a half of that, he was at a prayer meeting one night in an intercessory prayer meeting, and one of the older ladies in the church, she walked over to him and whispered in his ear. She said, I feel a little uncomfortable saying this to you because you're a mighty intercessor. Nobody would think, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. But the Lord just showed me that you're involved in all kinds of sexual perversion and things that I'm ashamed to even mention. But the Lord also showed me that he's pulling you out of it right now. He broke and he began to weep. He was exposed. Isn't it wonderful how the Lord knows how to expose you but in the most loving way? God's not trying to humiliate you. He did that to the devil. He's not trying to do that to you. He struggled. He still couldn't come fully out of that lifestyle, but he began to struggle with it at least instead of embracing it. I guess about six months later, he said an evangelist came to our church. And he said that evangelist was preaching with power, and then he began to share words of knowledge and words of prophecy over people in the congregation. And all of a sudden he looked at me and he said, young man, come here. He said, I came and I stood in front of him, and that man looked me in the eye. And he said, God has shown me that he's given you a wisdom beyond your years. He's placed an anointing on your life that will take you before multitudes all around the world. And God's going to use you in great and mighty and powerful ways and signs and wonders and mighty deeds all over the earth. But the Lord's also shown me that you're like Esau because you're about to trade your inheritance for a bowl of porridge. He said, I broke and began to weep. He said, then that evangelist came and laid his hands on me. And he said, when that evangelist laid his hands on me, the power of God hit me so hard that I flew off my feet backward and hit the floor. He said, on the floor, the power of God continued to come on me more powerfully than I had ever experienced before in my life. And when I got up off the floor, I felt like Jesus had bleached the inner walls of my heart. He said, I felt blameless. He said, I was so excited, I started running around the church and telling people, today the Lord set me free from sexual perversion. He set me free from male prostitution. I was selling myself in sex clubs, but he set me. He said, I was freely telling everybody what the Lord did. I had absolutely no shame. The Lord had taken all of that shame off of me and all of that sin out of me. He had set me free and delivered me. And that moment in the testimony, I could feel Jesus coming into the car with us. That moment in the testimony changed everything that he had said before it. The work of Jesus Christ negates everything that Satan does in your life. But watch this. The Lord came and took all that shame away and the church started to give it back to him. I, I, I just wish I had a church that believed in Jesus. Because when somebody tells you what Jesus did in their life, don't try to give them back the shame that Jesus just took from them. He's running around telling people, Jesus delivered me from all this. And they're thinking, he probably still got some of it. And people are telling him, stay away from my kids. He wants to hug a man and they're going, hmm. you ain't getting me.
You know what happened? The church gave him so much shame that he started to believe it again. And there was a process of the Lord pulling him fully out of that lifestyle. You know what I said to him at that moment? I said, I will never see you in any other light than the light of Jesus Christ. That moment when you were 16 years old, that's who you are. Jesus bleached the inner walls of your heart and you are blameless. You are not being delivered. You are delivered. You are not being set free. You are set free. It is not a process. It was a moment. And if there's any moment when Jesus has done anything in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the moment that defines your identity. You can come into bondage again only if you stop believing that you're free. He was so sure he was free that without shame he was telling everybody, Jesus set me free. And the church started giving that shame back to him. What if there were fathers and mothers there who were able to establish him in that and say, no, you're, no son, you're blameless. You're bl- the Lord, the, no, don't go home thinking you're still struggling. Don't go home thinking it's going to be a process. Jesus has bleached the inner walls of your heart and you are blameless. I want a church that knows how to identify the work of Jesus and see only what Jesus is doing and believe. I don't even believe what the devil's doing anymore because it doesn't matter. He's been disarmed. He's been defeated. He's been made a public spectacle of by the cross. I don't care what you've walked in, where you've been, what you've done, what you struggle with. It is not stronger than the power of the cross. Come on. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. There is no other formula for deliverance than the cross of Jesus Christ. Believing, believing in what He did on that cross. Believing in what He did on that cross. Believing that your freedom is right there. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The problem is that too many believers go home and start doubting the power of the cross but believing the power of the demonic. You've forgotten that you were cleansed. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3. He says, His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You hear that? you got everything you need. I know you walk home and you think, Oh, I wish I had this. If I had more faith, if I had more of this, I, I could walk clean. If I had this, maybe one day the Lord will give me this and I'll have this. And, and if I had a wife, then I, I wouldn't struggle with this anymore. And if, if, I, if I had a husband, then I wouldn't struggle with this anymore. And, Maybe if I had a job, I wouldn't be tempted to do this anymore. And if, maybe if I had a, you know, I know if I, I'm missing something. Peter says, no, 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 no. Check this out. His divine power, peep it, dog. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. Through the knowledge of him who has called you by his glory and goodness. And if that weren't enough, He's also given you his very great and precious promises so that by them you might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. So you've got to believe that his divine power has given you everything you need, number one, for life and godliness. Number two, you've got to begin to know him who has called you by his own glory and goodness. 
And number three, you've got to begin to cling to those good and precious promises that give you the power and authority to participate in the divine nature. What does it mean to participate in the divine nature? It means that which is nature, natural to God becomes natural to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's only natural that I would have these desires. Yeah, but that's not your nature anymore. You participate in the divine nature. You know what's natural to him? Holiness, healing, deliverance, and prosperity. That's natural to him. You say, well, that's supernatural power. It's not supernatural to God. It's natural to him. It just makes sense that he heals folks. That's just who he is. He said, I am the Lord who heals you. It just makes sense that he delivers folks. That's who he is. And when you begin to participate in the divine nature, what just makes sense to God just begins to make sense to you. And those promises also empower you to, to escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. And he goes on from there. He says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance. I love that he follows self-control with perseverance because we think it's enough to be self-controlled for a couple days. And then we feel real good. To self-control, perseverance, meaning start controlling yourself and keep on controlling yourself. But Say, Pastor, I lost control. Yeah, well, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And perseverance, brotherly, brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these things in increasing measure, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this. But he who lacks these things is short-sighted. See, I, I'm nearsighted, which is the same thing as short-sightedness, meaning without my glasses on, I can't recognize nobody in this room right now. I see men as trees. When you're short-sighted, the room could be filled with the blessings and power of God, but you can't see past here. You can't see past your own imperfections. All you see is just these blurs. Could be blessing, could be curse. Could be a miracle, could be death. Could be provision, could be poverty. I, I can't recognize anything because I'm short-sighted even to blindness. You know, I'm not allowed by law to operate a motor, motor vehicle without wearing these. Whoa! Why, why is he short-sighted even to blindness? Because he's forgotten that he's been cleansed. You just forgot that Jesus took all that away from you. You forgot that you've been cleansed. You forgot that you've been delivered. You forgot that you've been set. You just forgot. That's all. You just got to remember. Oh, yeah. That's who I used to be, but that's not who I am anymore. Oh, yeah. That's what I used to have. See, the devil will convince you that you need to get saved and delivered all over again. No, you don't. You just need to remember. And that's why Jesus took the bread and the wine and he sat with his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. We've taken that to mean, remember me. I don't want to be forgotten. As if Jesus was, you know, insecure. And what do we do? We cry as we remember him. Oh, I remember what you did. But you don't remember what it means. He said, no, no, no. I don't need that. I'm at the Father's right hand. The angels are far. I'm not up in heaven going, I hope they don't forget me. 
Remember what it means. Remember that this is my body which is broken for you. Remember that this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the redemption of many. Remember that this redeems you. Remember that this heals you. Remember that this sets you free. Remember that this provides for you. Remember that this forgives you. Remember that you're delivered because of my body and my blood. You can come into bondage only if you forget. Only if you forget. If you forget the truth. The moment you step back into the remembrance of the truth. He died for me. He disarmed every power and principality. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. He broke every chain. He translated me out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He made me a king. And a priest to serve his God and King. The moment I remember. No power of darkness can hold me. Sin and bondage always come from unbelief. That's it. You cannot walk in faith and walk in sin. And you cannot walk in faith and walk in bondage. Faith equals freedom. And if you make a decision today, I'm going to remember all of his benefits. Then you step into the place where you remember the benefit of freedom. That he redeems my life from the pit. We were in Ethiopia in November, and I'll end with this. We were in Ethiopia in November, and a lot of people were demonized there, a lot of people. Before the service started, um, and, you know, there's 100,000 people that converged on this soccer field for this crusade, and it's going to be even bigger. I talked to Carl Hargestam yesterday. He expects it to be maybe even three times bigger when we go in, in May to, uh, to Sidamo. But there was this very powerful evangelist who, an hour before every meeting started, he would get up on the platform and just confront the powers. I command every demon in this place to leave in the name of Jesus. I cast you out. And all of a sudden, people start manifesting, and the ushers would carry them to the deliverance tent. They would go through a deliverance process and get them delivered, then send them back out. And I mean, literally every night, hundreds of people were getting delivered of demons. Hundreds of people. And they'd get set free, and I'd see him. One man came in. He was so wildly and violently demon-possessed that he was in chains. They had to keep him in chains because he was violent and he would hurt people. And he got set free, and they unchained him on the platform. I got a video of them unchaining him. It, I mean, the place erupted. Everyone just went crazy. The power of Jesus Christ over even demonic powers that seem to be so strong, they seem impenetrable. But the name of Jesus breaks it all. But you know what one of the local leaders told me? He said a lot of these people that were manifesting demons and getting delivered, a lot of them had been delivered before. They go to our churches. This isn't the first time they've manifested and somebody had to do deliverance with them and they got set free. And six months later, they're in the same condition again. 
And he said, you know what the problem here is here? So the minds of these people are so weak that as soon as the devil whispers one word in their ear, they think, oh no, the devil has overtaken my life, and they start to believe. And because they believe that the devil can overpower them anytime he wants to, and they're so fervent in that belief, this is what the local leader told me, we see these people get delivered, and they go home and get demonized again the same night. Because they have more faith in the power of the devil to overtake them than they, than they do in the power of God to keep them. First John chapter 5, in that passage 16, 17, and 18, he says, He who is born of God does not sin. In fact, he cannot sin because God's seed remains in him. But in verse 18, 1 John 5, 18, it says, The one born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one touches him not. Amen. Who's the one born of God? Jesus, the one born of God keeps you safe and the evil one touches you not. The one born of God keeps you safe and the evil one touches you not. I don't know about you, but I'm going to meditate on that day and night. The one born of God keeps me safe and the evil one touches me not. It's not about searching your life for bondage. It's about searching the heavens for freedom. It's not about identifying the bondage. It's about identifying the bondage breaker. It's about focusing on Jesus. We will not glorify the demonic in this house. We will glorify the one who destroyed it and the one who gives us victory over it. We're going to walk free. We're not going to forget all of his benefits. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Bow your head. Hallelujah. Father, I speak blessing over this house right now. Michael Sanchez, come up here, please, would you? Just tickle the ivories for us, just nice and soft. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I just speak blessing over this house right now. Hallelujah. I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're here, that you're in the house. Father, first of all, I pray that you would bring back to the remembrance of individuals that feel that they're struggling in some kind of bondage. Bring back to their remembrance what you've done for them. Many of them have had powerful moments with you when you come into their hearts and clean them and wash stuff away and broke stuff, but we've forgotten. And so, Father, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us of what you've done. And right now, I just want you to allow your mind and heart to go back to that moment. What did Jesus do in your life? When did he meet you? When did he meet you? When did he overpower your life? When did he break every power of bondage over your life? Do you remember that moment when Jesus met you? That's real. What Jesus did there is real. At some point you stop believing it, but today you're going to begin to believe it again. You're going to go back to that moment and say, No, Jesus, that work that you did in my life there is still good. It's still real. I will not forget I will not forget, I will not forget your promises. I will not forget your love. I will not forget your power. I will not forget your cross. Some of you here have forgotten the cross. Remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring back to our remembrance that moment when you gave us victory. I pray that you do it right now. In the name of Jesus. We declare freedom for every captive, and we declare it not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. 
Jesus, you are the bondage breaker. You are the liberator. You are the one who gives us freedom. Freedom comes only from you. Jesus, we lift up your name and exalt it today in this house. Your name is holy. Your name is power. Your name is might. Your name defeats every captive. Your name is life. We will walk steadfastly in the liberty by which Christ has set us free. We will not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. We will not. First of all, while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. No one's looking around. I want to ask, maybe you're here today. Maybe you've never had a moment like that. Maybe you can't look back at a power moment when Jesus set you free, and that's why you struggle so much with bondage. Maybe you're here today, you don't even know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never met Him. His Word has never been revealed to you. The Scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 3 that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The Word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And maybe you're here today, maybe you've even said a prayer and invited Him into your heart, but the Word of the Lord has not been revealed to you. You haven't met Him in a powerful way. And you need to know His work in your life today. You need to know Him as Lord and Savior. Not just that He is Lord and Savior, but know Him, know His Lordship, and know His saving. You need Him to set you on high. If that's you today and you say, I want that, lift your hand. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's looking around. I see that hand right there. Somebody else. I see that hand right there. Somebody else. Somebody else. I see that hand right there. Secondly, there's some of you here today and you just feel like you're stuck in something. You feel like you're bound by something. You don't know if it's the flesh. You don't know if it's the devil. You know what? At the end of the day, it really doesn't make a difference. You feel trapped. You feel like you don't have the power to break free, break free but you are starving. For freedom. You are crying out for freedom. You are asking God to set you free. You are saying, God, I want release from this and I want it now and you're ready to get it. I want you to lift your hand right where you are. Yes. I want the elders to come stand up here at this altar right now. All of you who lifted your hands, I want you to come stand in front of one of the elders. You're free today. You're not going to leave this house with that in your life anymore. You're not going to leave this house feeling trapped anymore. You're not going to walk away from here feeling stuck anymore, feeling like you're in bondage, feeling like you don't have the power, like something has power over you. You're going to walk out of here knowing the freedom that's in Jesus. Hallelujah. We declare freedom right now in the name of Jesus. We declare freedom right now in the name of Jesus. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. We declare freedom. We declare wholeness. We declare wholeness.